0: to where you can actually go off and do your own thing. This is The Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. Darn right it is. You finally made it to the end of the week. It is a Friday. This is The Voice of Reason. What up? Andy Hoosier here broadcasting live out of the heart of the nation in Wichita, Kansas on our flagship radio station all over the country, radio, TV, live streaming, and podcasting. Wherever you may be watching or listening, we appreciate you very, very much. Doing what we do every single day, your Millennial General reporting for duty. Boy, do we have a show lined up for you today? Two guests, which means we have to get to one here in just a minute. Coming up at the bottom of the hour, Professor John Ellis. He is a professor emeritus of German literature at the University of California in Santa Cruz. He has a piece talking about postmodernism. What is it? What does it amount to? And why people that promote postmodernism don't even know how to properly promote it. So we'll go a little philosophical for you at the bottom of the hour and have some fun. I, I, that's the way you wanted to wrap up a week, right? <laughs> that's how you wanted to finish off the week was talking about postmodernism in today's society. Coming up here in just a couple of minutes, we'll play our interview with congressman bob latta he's from the fifth district of the great state of ohio we sit down and get our monthly chat with him as usual we went about 30 minutes with the interview with him which means we'll play a few minutes of it here on the program you'll get the full extended version on our podcast that'll be uploaded directly after the show hey welcome into it hope you had a great week and let's get you set for a weekend i know a lot of individuals Especially where I'm based out of here in Kansas, there are a lot of individuals that love their golf. I have never gotten into golf. I don't. I, I've never even been on a golf course. I got to admit it. I've always wanted to. I and by when I say I want to be on a golf course, I mean I want to be on the golf course with a case of beer and see how far I can hit the ball happy Gilmore style. That <laughs> that's about the extent of the golf that I'm aware of. But everybody's making a big deal about Tiger Woods not doing well at the British Open that's going on right now and it goes through on through the weekend, which I know a lot of people may be watching. If you do, all the power to you. I'm glad it entertains you. I have no clue why we watch golf on TV because I would sleep the entire way through it. But I would like to try golf at some point in my life. And again, by trying golf, I mean trying it with a case of adult beverages and swinging like Happy Gilmore across the entire golf course and then driving around in a golf cart. That would be the most entertaining aspect to me in this whole thing. But the fascination that we have with Tiger Woods, I just don't understand. Yeah, he's a good golf player, obviously. Okay, cool. Outside of that, I don't care about the guy. He's a good golf player. You remember when he had his whole you know, a fair thing and all the light came out about all the people that he had slept with and that uh, he's, his marriage was breaking up and all the issues and he went away for a while went to rehab. And then when he came back, I'll never forget this, I was interning at the radio station that I started off with when I was going to the broadcasting school, 850 KOA out of Denver, big 100,000 watt station out there and I was interning for the legendary Mike Rosen and I, I'll never forget, he was in the middle of his show and the local news guys on KOA at that time interrupted him of his program talking about issues because they broke in to confirm that tiger woods for the first time was going to return back to a golf tournament after all of the scandals, after he was released from the rehab facility, it was such big news. They interrupted him in the middle of his show to announce that they were like, it wasn't just in the regular news broadcast. They broke into the show as breaking news because it was the most important thing since sliced bread. And from that thought on, I never understood why. He was such a popular guy, nor did I even care in any way, shape or form either. So there it is, the golf tournament going on. If you care to watch it this weekend, I I won't be because I just don't care. But golf is a popular thing and a lot of people enjoy it. All right, I want to shift gears. Bob Ladd, a congressman from the 5th District of Ohio. We sat down with him yesterday morning to talk about the latest out of Washington, D.C., what's going on with inflation, with the economy and more. And this is what he had to say with us here on The Voice of Reason. Congressman, how are you, my friend? I'm great. How are you today? Hey, doing good. Always good to chat with you. Lots of stuff to talk about, obviously. We just saw the uh, the reports just in the last day or so about inflation for the month of June, officially hitting 9.1%. Consumer prices on many issues and at local levels even hitting, as some are saying, near 12.6% overall with, with consumer goods. Gas prices are still skyrocketing across the nation. Congressman this just keeps getting harder and harder to just be able to afford the basic necessities.
1: Well, you're absolutely correct because several things are going on. When you think about 9.1 percent inflation rate, we were, we weren't even talking about inflation when uh, President Biden came into office, and when the Democrats, on their own, last year passed a 1.9 trillion bailout bill, uh, which did nothing except uh, sent money all across the country that uh, the areas that didn't need it that, that you, know, you don't pay for something, that's a problem. The infrastructure package they, they passed uh, last year also uh, didn't really uh, do anything there either. Uh, you know it's, it's one of those things, like when I say didn't do anything, they didn't pay for it. And so you put all these things adding up and not paying for these uh, pieces of legislation, it catches up. And so when the federal government is out there uh, you know, spending so much money, Uh, It's going to do this. And, you know, and also uh, last year, when you think about that, the, uh, you know, we were paying people uh, an extra $600 and then $300 on top of their unemployment instead of, you know, getting back to work, that didn't help. So now you're looking at 91% uh, inflation out there. And you know, gasoline's up almost sixty percent now. And then the other thing is that you know, just that you know, the, as you said, the necessities out there. You know, food prices are gone up about ten percent. And my when my uh, wife had asked me if I could stop by the grocery store, I was walking through uh, the meat department. I happened to look down, a pound and a half of bacon was twelve dollars.
0: Mm. Good golly!
1: So you know, you start looking at these numbers out there, and then you think about with oil prices. And uh, you know natural gas prices, and it's all and again it's, it's all self-inflicted. And when it's it and so when you got the president of the United States, you know, uh, over in the Middle East right now begging for oil that we should be taking care of ourselves. And at the same time, he's taking a million barrels of oil out of our strategic petroleum reserve every day. That and he wants to take 180 mm-hmm. million barrels out. The problem with that is we're going to have to put that uh, that oil back in. At a higher price, so the taxpayers are going to pay for this double. Yeah. So it's all—it's all, it's, you, know, you look at the over the horizon. There's no good picture out there.
0: There's not a good picture, and like you said, I mean, we're depleting our oil reserves. Which, when Joe Biden first got into office, pre- former President Donald Trump had replenished those reserves. We had a full t- a full reserve, a full tank of gas, essentially for the nation overall as a safety net and a backup. We were. Uh, producing domestically to where we were actually a net exporter overall, and we are in a good shape now. We're depleting the oil reserves, and it's not even going into our own, uh, uh, which is not going to do a whole lot since we consume anywhere between 23 to 24 uh, million barrels a day. But uh, getting rid of a million barrels a day out of our reserves – It's not even going into our system, Congressman. It's going out and being sold on the global market. In fact, then we had Hunter Biden actually selling it to, you know, nice little energy companies that he's tied with for some kickbacks over there. But it's being sold back to them while we're begging for more to be sent in. I I mean, this just doesn't make any sense to me.
1: Well, again, you and I have talked about this. You know, on day one, when this president killed the Keystone XL, that was, that that brought in eight hundred thirty thousand barrels of oil in from Canada every day, and we you know we can become North American energy independent here. And if, and then you look at uh, what he's done to our oil uh, and natural gas leases onshore, offshore, making it. And then the president turns around and blames the oil companies that they're price gouging, and then he blames the local gas station that they're charging too much for gasoline that the president doesn't even know that the vast majority of gas stations out there are owned by mom and pops out there It's they're not owned by the oil companies and there's only about a one to two cent uh, profit range in there and as the federal trade commission said about when the president was talking about price gouging he said hey look it's it's not the price gouging it's called the market yeah. and uh, the, the problem is if you put uh, you take more oil offline, and then the president can't understand why refineries can't uh, go out and uh, refine more oil. Well, wait a minute. That's because they've made it so hard for refineries to get permits to do what they've got to do. And then they turn around, and then they get the Security and Exchange Commission going after uh, uh, energy-producing companies. And it's like, you know, you you're, you just can't – you can't expand. You can't bring more up. You can't do more – And so this is really, and I've said when it comes to the petroleum uh, products out there that we have to have and the natural gas, that, uh, you know, this president, when you're robbing the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, that, uh, you know, that's there for a national emergency, not for being inept or uh, incompetent in what you're doing.
0: Yeah, that is very true. Now, we're hearing words from areas like Texas that are starting to see some brown and blackouts because the uh, grid is strained because of, obviously, the high temperatures and the heat. Uh, I live in Kansas, and we're starting to not quite see it here yet, but they've been warning about potential brownouts and blackouts with that electric grid. I mean, but state of Texas, especially when they had that cold front a few years ago, they weren't allowed to turn on additional coal plants to try and put electricity back into the grid. Now we're seeing the same thing, but on the heat side with people trying to run their air conditioners uh, as we continue to move down this road of green new energy and trying to go all electric and trying to get electric vehicles you know i've talked about this quite a bit on the program but i mean are we going to see more of this across the nation with a strain on the grid energy wise because of this movement towards green new energy and is the temperatures either get to be extreme cold or extreme hot throughout the year that we're going to see more and more brown and blackouts across the nation
1: well, I can't believe it's been this many years ago. Back in 2008, Republicans in the House, we put forward a proposal calling on all above energy policy. That's everything from nuclear to clean coal, natural gas, uh, hydro, uh, and then your alternatives. But the one thing that uh, doesn't get discussed enough is what we call base load capacity. And baseload capacity is, you know, that comes from your heavy generation. That's what runs your factories, your businesses. And, uh, you know, when a lot of times when you hear on the, uh, alternative side, they say, well, th- th- this is going to uh, be able to turn on a uh, thousand houses. But people have to listen to what they're saying. They're not saying, you know, like in my area with 86,000 manufacturing jobs, with heavy manufacturing going on, that we've got to have ba- that heavy base load to do it. And again, we can't do it without, without you know, the, your traditional uh, areas. And you're absolutely right when you think about when you're taking offline different power plants, because like in the state of Ohio, when we had the polar vortex that went across the country in 2014. We did not have a blackout or a brownout in the state because every power generation station was at peak. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, we, since that time we've seen, because it's very difficult to meet all the EPA regulations, that the plants have been going offline. Yeah. And they're not going to come back online. And so, you know, and all of a sudden people are saying, how come we're having brownouts and blackouts in the middle of the summer. Because we can't meet the power demand.
0: <laughs> yeah. Now the good news here is uh, after the last couple of weeks with some of the latest Supreme Court decisions, where they not only re- reverse Roe v. Wade, which I want to get to in a second here, but they also went after the EPA on their regulation with carbon emissions and carbon, the cap and trade stuff, the 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 carbon uh, industry that they've tried to regulate very heavily, saying that it was unconstitutional for these uh, third party or these this fourth branch of government, these agencies and departments, to try and come down with these laws just through executive power. Is that going to help the energy industry, do you think, with this decision moving forward with a little bit more free reign in the market to actually produce the energy that we need to without the overbearing regulations coming from the EPA?
1: Well, I think what you're going to see, though, especially with this administration, the Democrats still in power here in Washington, they're going to try to find another back backdoor mm. uh, because they're not going to let loose. And I think the companies out there uh, that uh, produce the power know that. But uh, you know, I think what the Supreme Court uh, said that uh, you know should put them on notice as that they've they've they crossed the line. But uh, do I think it's going to stop uh, this administration and, and uh, its agencies, departments? No, it, I, I don't think so.
0: There it wow, is, House that Congressman sad. Bob Latta from the Fifth District of Ohio. Lots more to get to here for a Friday wrapping up your week. Stay right here on the Voice of Reason. The Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. Bring some reason into your day. This is the voice of reason with Andy Hoosier. Welcome back into the program. Thanks for hanging out with us today for a Friday. You know, what's funny about this economic conversation that we've had over the last day or so, and we appreciate Congressman Bob Latta from the 5th District of Ohio. And for those that don't know, by the way, we get him on about once a month. It's always great to chat with him. He is a good friend of mine. He was the district that I lived in growing up as a kid and in college and just in the last couple of years. So, and he's been there for a while and we appreciate everything that he does in Washington, D.C. He always gives us a lot of time. Like, a lot of time. We talk for about, I don't know, 30, 40 minutes usually for an interview. So we recorded about a 30-minute interview. We only get to play about 9 to 10 minutes of that on this program. So if you want to hear more of it, subscribe to our podcast. Just find us at HoosierReason.com or The Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier on any of your favorite podcasting sites. And you can find us, you can subscribe to us, you can listen to it. But we will upload that as an extra podcast after the program as an extended special feature version with the entire 30-minute interview. And I highly recommend it. Because there's a lot of good conversation and and, uh, topics in there that we cover, not just the economic issue. So as we talk about this 9.1% inflation rate, I, I don't know. Were you aware of this? I was not aware of this. But apparently my generation, the millennial generation, is the ones to blame for inflation. Did you know that? Nice. Nice. That's according to uh, CNBC and quote-unquote economic experts. Now, these are the same experts that are trying to win over the millennial generation by trying to do universal health care, by trying to wipe away education costs and student loans and just wiping up just poof gone the executive order from the from the biden administration they could just go away and you could have a voter base of democrats as millennials for the next however many decades that they continue to vote but according to cnbc my generation the millennials are of whom to blame for the sky high inflation as they say according to them Quote, see, what everyone is not including in the conversation is what really causes inflation, which is too many people with too much money chasing too few goods. That's Bill Smead, the chief investment officer at Smead Capital Management, according to CNBC. He explains that the U.S. there are estimated 92 million millennials, primarily between 27 to 42 years old. And the last time we saw what was called Wolverine inflation, which is inflation that is hard for policymakers to stop, was when 75 million baby boomers uh, boomers had replaced 44 million silent generation people in the 1970s. So according to them, my generation has too much money and we're buying too many goods and we're (laughs) we're the ones causing inflation. Not the fact that the government's spending too much money and lowering the value of the dollar. Not the fact that businesses, because of the inflation and because of the supply chain issues, are reining in and not purchasing as many goods. Or consumers who are not buying as many goods now because it's too expensive and because gas is too high or the groceries are too high or you can't find what you're looking for. Not because of the Biden administration's foreign policy to where we have ports that are full with ships that are just docked there ready to be unloaded that he doesn't want to unload. So that way that's causing a strain on the system or that we're sending back empty cargo ships back to China or wherever we go without our stuff being exported. The supply chain is messed up to the nth degree, and they're blaming the generation that they want as the voting base for the Democrat Party by saying that we have too much money and we're buying too many goods that are strained right now in the system. I'm not sure how that makes any sense right now. First off, no, my generation does not have a lot of money. First off, the ones that are more on the progressive liberal side of the aisle, they don't have much money because they usually don't hold jobs because they're the professional protesters that live in their parents' basements. The millennials that do work like myself and so many others out there are the ones that are trying to go paycheck to paycheck right now because we haven't had great inflation or great economic opportunity for us to do well. And when we did, you guys crashed it with a COVID-19 pandemic that locked everything down for two years. So please tell me how my generation, where I'm 30 right now has had all this opportunity to gain all this wonderful wealth to be just rolling in cash to be buying up everything because we just have all this expendable cash that's straining the system to cause inflation no 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 that would be the ports and the exports and the imports and the printing of the dollar and messing with the private sector don't blame the generation you're trying to win over please the voice of reason with Andy Hoosier When Reason Meets Radio, you're listening to The Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. Oh, reason, common sense, rationale. You know, it's funny. The millennial generation, my generation, apparently are the ones that are causing inflation. We just have way too much money. We have all this expendable cash, and we're just putting a strain on the system. (laughs) That's according to the latest experts from CNBC right now, saying that my generation's causing that 9.1% inflation. Because we have all this expendable cash and, you know, buying all those avocado lattes and things. Good golly. Which, again, I apologize for my generation. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But give me a break. We don't put the strain on the system. And you know what? That's the beauty of a private market. This is why the government and the, you know, the the government strategists and experts don't quite grasp the concept that, you know what? Yeah, my generation is a larger generation. But guess what? When we have more demand because we're a larger population, then guess what? Then the consumer market, if left unwilly and, and actually does its own thing in the private, laissez-faire, free market society, it'll compensate for that with more businesses to grow or they bring in more product, or we use more products or we have more product available. And that supply... Continues to go up. No, no, it's not our generation causing the inflation. It is massive amounts of money that's just being printed without any backing on it at the federal level. Then we have supply chain issues that are caused largely in part by the Biden administration right now. Then you have things sitting off the coast of California not being unloaded off the docks. And then we have empty cargo ships going back to China or other places uh, because we're not exporting stuff right now. And then we have what we get right now with energy shortages and with food shortages and with supply chain issues and with a 9.1% inflation rate. Really consumer prices, according to CNBC as well, that are sitting anywhere between 116 to 12.6% inflation overall. But that's enough of that conversation because my brain hurts even thinking about it. Let's go into what's trending of the day. What's trending today? Now, I am really happy to have our next guest on the program. And even though it is a Friday, and we try and keep things somewhat light-hearted, I am a philosophical nerd, and I enjoy these conversations. So this is the direction we're going to go today. But postmodernism, the heck is it? I'm not quite sure myself, so I'm excited to talk about postmodernism and where we're going in this nation with our next guest. He is a distinguished professor emeritus of German literature at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and his latest piece, What Does Postmodernism Really Amount to? Excited to have on the program with us here, Mr. John Ellis. John, how are you, my friend? Oh, good, thanks, and thanks for having me on. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on. I'm excited for the conversation. I guess the starting point for this one would be, what in the world is postmodernism?
2: Well, the main the main thing to say about it is that the people that actually promote it don't know either. I mean, if you ask them what it is, they they can't tell you. But what it really is is a sort of is a cover for radical leftism. I mean, the real core of it is just plain old Marxist thinking. But the, but the postmodernists know very well that you that won't sell. You know, you can't take that to the ballot box in America and expect People to vote for it. Well, you can't take it into the classroom most of the time, anyway, and expect people to, to to listen. So you dress it up as something fancy and with lots and lots of long words and, that no one really understands. And French thinkers that were fashionable about fifty years ago, and you call it postmodernism. But really what it comes down to basically is that our educational system is dominated by radical leftists. Yeah. They're the the last people you should want to have your kids taught by because in education, you want your children's minds to be opened up. You want them to be... ...to deal with new situations, understand the knowledge of the country, the history, the, the governmental system and so on. All of that... Radical lefts are not only not interested in, they really don't want your kid to get all that because of mind. A mind that's active, the mind that, that can think for itself. They want a closed mind,
0: sure.
2: a mind that will do what they tell them to do.
0: Yeah, that is very true. I mean, it is not, uh, we've realized in the education system today that it's not, about how to think, but about what to think, by regurgitating this information, and this information's very censored, it's very limited. When did this all start? When did this movement of trying to shift the mindset of the education system for the young individuals, K-12 and even higher education as well, when did this movement really begin?
2: Well, in uh, back in the 60, early 60s, 1962, a group of um, basically Marxist students uh, I had a meeting at a place called Ponchon, and they 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 all agreed that they were never going to get anywhere at the ballot box. Americans would never vote Marxist. So they formulated a plan, and the plan was they would take over higher education, and they would get to young, young, amateur students, and 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 it, 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 it was, what those people believed in Marxism. Now I was, uh, you know, I was just beginning university teaching in those days. When I heard about this, I just laughed because it was about a hundred Marxist young kids that knew nothing about the world, and I just thought ridiculous. Well, you know, uh, go, go fast forward fifty, sixty years. They did it. I mean, uh, they gradually built their strength on the campuses. If you go back to about 1969, there was a survey done by a friend of mine, actually, called Montroll, and mine found that there were three leftist professors on campus for every two right of center. So you're three to two. Well, you can have a really good, healthy debate in that. So, in other words, if, if, if somebody on the left says something stupid, or a lot of uh, professors poke holes in what he said. So you have a good, a good healthy debate and if if any, if any really stupid theory pops up it's going to get shot down by people who know what they're doing. Yeah. So it, it's all the debate on campus all the process all the classrooms they're kept healthy by the competition between the two sides. Now slowly the left, the radical left, kept watching for opportunities. And by the end of the century, 1999, another survey finds that it's now five left to one right. Wow. So they have been, those young men, they have been carefully, you know, picking up opportunities one by one, increasing their strength. Now, the time they got there... And at that point, the floodgates opened. And for the last 20 years, we've had nothing but leftist hiring. So the ratio on campus now is about 15 to 1. But it's going to get worse than that because uh, if you look at the – a little study was done of, of the most recent, most recently hired professors. And they're running at about 50 left to one right. Wow. So basically, as all as the professors retire, they're being replaced by a 50-to-1 mix of left and right. So, you know, if we think this is bad, it's going to get worse.
0: Yeah, well, it's, it's, gonna get it's scary. Worse. It, it, it's scary to see just that lack of dialogue and lack of conversation on both sides of the aisle. But what it seems like is when they started, I remember, I mean, I wasn't around at that time. I'm 33 now, so I'm just going through the millennial stage here, which, again, I apologize for, for most listeners. But, uh, I mean, what it sounds like is they started off as, the rebels of we're going to fight the system to where now they are the system. And that's kind of an interesting transition.
2: That's that's right. Oh, you've got to hand it to them. They never gave up. They never slept. And we, all the rest of us didn't really realize the extent to which they were making progress until it was too late. I would say it was too late by by about the turn of the century. They controlled the campuses by that point. Uh, They kept on telling us... It, it, I mean, basically there were people like me saying, we've got to stop doing this. I mean we you know we've got to keep a good balance on the campuses. And they will deny that that was what they were doing. They were saying we were simply so sort of witch hunting them. Mm-hmm. But in fact, uh, by the time you get to about 2010, when it with something like about 12 to one left to right at that point, that's the point at which they stopped denying they're doing it. Wow. And at that for to harass conservative scholars, I know personally half a dozen people, uh, older older scholars in the in, uh, universities, who are at this moment, their colleagues are making their life a misery to try and get rid of them. Uh, and in every single case that I know of, these are brilliant people. These are among the top scholars in, in, in their department. The sort of people that you know, in years gone by, the would, of the department would beg them to stay on as long as possible because, because he really wanted people of their brilliance. But now it's the 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 the, the radical left. One, those are the people that they want rid of. The really good people, they want rid of those because they're dangerous. They sure. You know, kids might listen to them. <laughs> kids uh, might actually don't have their that. minds
0: opened, yeah. yeah. When you actually have the dialogue and you actually see progressive liberal values compared to conservative values and you actually see the arguments left and right, then you can make your own decision, and most people fall center-right in this country predominantly, but when you have that conversation, that opens their eyes up to how radical they actually are. Uh, we got about 30 seconds before we have to take a hard break here. John, could you stick over one more segment with us? Sure. Perfect. I appreciate because I love this conversation and I think it leads into what we're seeing now, like you mentioned, with this postmodernism of changing things to make it look a little more sexy with this progressive movement, which is why we're seeing not a socialist movement, but a democratic socialist movement and the rise of Bernie Sanders and of the such as well, which we'll talk about when we come back here in just a minute as well. It's John Ellis, Professor John Ellis from the uh, University of California in Santa Cruz. Also check out his book, The Breakdown of Higher Education, How It Happened, The Damage It Does, and What Can Be Done. You can check it out in EncounterBooks.com and uh, definitely a good read there. When we come back, I want to talk about the future of this and with this massive shift in higher education, Can we get it back? What can we do to actually change that and bring conservatives back into the realm of conversation? It's starting with the K-12 education system and parents running for the school boards across the nation. Can we infiltrate higher education again, or is it a lost cause? We'll talk about some of that when we come back here on The Voice of Reason for a Friday. Stay here. The Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. Fighting for freedom every day. The Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. Darn right it is. Welcome back into The Voice of Reason, radio TV, live streaming and podcasting, multiple radio shows, radio stations all over the country, plus our podcast that kills it. We are in about 48, 49 states every single month with our downloads. So thank you guys. No matter where you're listening or watching, we appreciate you very, very much. Your millennial general doing what we do best on the program today super fascinating conversation post-modernism and the radical left taking over all the industries it's Professor John Ellis his book the break of higher education the breakdown of higher education how it happened the damage it does and what can be done uh, John let's talk about this whole movement let's I, I love the term like Bernie Sanders used this democratic socialism and how it's this new flavor of socialism you know because it's not really socialism but it's almost like it and we've vote for it. I mean, is this kind of what you're talking about with this postmodernism trying to flavor these things up again to make it look cool? Yes, something
2: like that. I mean, uh, the left knows that if it speaks up honestly and says, this is what we're going to do, no one will vote for them. I mean, that's always been true, I think. Uh, uh, although less true, it's, it's more true now because uh, they've had a whole generation of university students who have graduated who they've brainwashed. Yeah. So actually, you'd have now about, uh, I think the last survey found that uh, young people under the age of 30, they go for socialism by about 50%. Now, that's a huge number. I mean, sure. you know, never seen that in this country before. But um, But for the most part, without the brainwashing from the universities, socialism wouldn't sell at all well so but you you you, you always find uh, uh the, the hard left especially trying to disguise what it's going to do
0: sure that is very true uh, yeah, yeah. Now, we got just a couple of minutes here, but I but I need to ask you moving forward here is is there a way to take this back? I mean, we're starting to see a little bit of a growing movement with the K through 12 education system with, you know, the critical race theory and the, the LGBTQ and the yeah. identity politics and parents taking over school boards again when we've kind of uh, just ignored that side and just thought they were going to run efficiently. And I think COVID woke a lot of people up there. But can we take back universities? Can we bring back conservatives to where it's not a 50 to 1 ratio or is it kind of a lost cause?
2: is to face up to what the real problem is. The real problem is this. You not only have a 15 to 1 ratio of left to right, but it's the, the, even the people who are there, leftists, they're not academic people. They're political operatives. Sure. So in other words, it's not just that they're academic teachers who happen to be on the left. They're not that at all. They're, they're, they're political activists first and foremost. Now, Got to do is look squarely in the face of the problem that they have universities, the staff, and classes who are not academic scholars. They're not anything like what you think. You think you're teaching
0: hmm. oh, No' Face
2: that, you realize that you can't persuade these people. Because they're not like you; they don't have your values in mind.
0: Sure.
2: you can't pass you can't pass laws that, that. I mean, a lot of people are in favour of laws on free speech on campus, for example. I mean, I I, I admire Florida very much, but that's what they're doing. I, I I'm pleased they're doing it. That's, but on the other hand, it's not going to it's not going to change anything fundamental. You go campuses are staffed by radical leftists posing as academic scholars. Sure. Until you can face that and do something about it, then, you know, it's hopeless. Now, the only thing I, I, I can suggest is this, that a lot of public money goes to support universities. I and mean, tuition paid by parents and by students. There's taxes paid by tax in states for universities.
0: Yeah.
2: Uh, foundations provide support and so on. Um, I mean, simply billions of dollars of public money trying to support this thing that is a fraud. Yeah, the money the money is put in the nope. belief that they're getting academic teaching of their kids. But it's a fraud. They're not getting that. They're getting they're getting political
0: results. Yeah. Well, maybe maybe it it's time for a bit stop. of a, yeah. Well, may, yeah, maybe it's time for a bit of a reform. And I think they're going to have a wake up call when more people start going back to trade schools, and we see that cycle going yeah, back on that yeah. front. So, John, we're out of time, my friend. Well, I could talk to you that's. forever. It's a great conversation. But we are all out. It's Professor John Ellis, the breakdown of higher education in his book. John, I love the conversation. Let's do this again real soon, my friend. Thank you. Hey, yeah appreciate that very much all right podcast up in a little bit we're back at it on monday for a whole new week until then have a great weekend try and school stay, stay cool out there if i can speak on the radio this is the voice of reason i'm Andy Hooger. we'll see you on the radio monday